for all those who feel called to build something bigger than themselves, but have no idea or representation as to how to bring it to pass. This podcast is for you. Let's figure it out together. Get ready. Let's build. Four, three, two, one. Everything that you've been through up until this point has helped you create your why. And when you have a strong why, nothing will stop you. What's up, family? This is so crazy to finally be here. First of all, I want to thank God for life and love, and I want to thank you for listening. This is an absolute dream come true that, first of all, I'd be here starting this and finally launching out on this next season of my journey. And second of all, that you would actually be listening. That is really awesome and and really cool. Welcome to Building Without a Blueprint. I am your host, Princeton Parker. Let me tell you a little bit about how this podcast came to be. I was listening to a podcast and I'd been freshly turned on to them by a a friend of mine and was listening and was just like, whoa, you know, these are cool. And then I kept going like, okay, wow. And then I reached this point where I was listening and I was like, hey, maybe I could do one of these. And then I kept listening. I was like, um... I think I should do one of these. (laughs) And then I finally reached the point where I was like, why am I not doing one of these? I basically remember the ways in which certain podcasts made me feel, the ways that they helped me feel strengthened, the way that they made me feel connected to someone who I had never met in life, but they knew what I was going through and gave me some ways to deal with that. But I remember the feeling of service, right? That these people who were doing these podcasts impacted me. And I said to myself, I want to have that level of impact on someone else. I want to inspire someone the way that the podcast that I listen to have inspired me and helped me on my journey. And I think that I have the gift to do it. So here we are. But let me tell you the real way this podcast came to be. I graduated from the University of Southern California. Second weekend of May 2015. That day was cool. I remember I got to carry the flag for the Annenberg School of Communication. Now listen, don't you sit there and judge me. Carrying the flag was a big deal. You had to be selected to carry the flag. It was an absolute honor, okay? It might not sound like that to you, but let me tell you it was. There were some people who got in a room and said, who do we want to represent our school? And I got selected to do it. It was super cool. My family was there. And I had this huge party. Thanks to my incredible mother, Dr. Simone Star Parker. And I remember at the party, there were so many people who were there who said wonderful things to me and about me, who were so excited about my future. And one of the hardest things to do was to reconcile how excited people were about my future and how much they believed in me with my own sight of the reality that existed before me, which was, yo, I don't know what I'm doing. It settled in right there after college where there's this grandiose expectation, right? Like you're, you're Princeton Parker. You graduated from USC. We, we can't wait to see what you do next. And that coupled with the fact that I was sitting there going, 
I have no idea what's going on. The one job that I had lined up, I would find out about a month and a half after graduation that even though it was promised that that position was going to be created for me, that would really pretty much not come to pass. I also remember that the other thing I would later learn is that there weren't too many other jobs lined up after that one. So I did what many folks start to do. And you try to look for what's in my hand, what's near me. So most people don't know that right after college, um, I started driving Uber. After that, I said, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to start trying to speak full time and I'm going to invest myself completely into speaking and realize that it's one thing to have the talent of a speaker. It's another thing to have the mind of an entrepreneur so that you can go through and actually build a business out of your talent of speaking. So that wasn't really panning out. At the same time, I had a connection through a friend of my girlfriend uh, who had some connections with a campaign manager who was working on a campaign for this young man working for or running for Hawthorne City of Council. So I started that. When people ask me today what I did after college, I like to tell them I worked in politics. But that is really just a fancy way of saying that I got paid to knock on doors for this young man running for office. I would walk with him, drive him around and I try to encourage people to vote for him. And I remember putting in hours and hours and hours, like fully dressed in a suit with dress shoes on, walking around this neighborhood, door to door, campaigning for him and, and helping him learn how to interact with people. This was very smart, but not all the time did he come across as someone who cared about people. And so I did my best. I worked my hardest for those three months that we were there working with him on that campaign. And at the end of it, I said, hey, I would love to work with you. And, and he seemed to be intrigued by the possibility of us continuing this partnership because I believe that I had really helped and added value to his campaign. But surely enough, he won and I never heard from him after. All these things right after graduation really brought up this idea of like, yo, I'm trying to build this idea of potential. I'm trying to build this idea of a destiny. I'm trying to build this idea of so many people who believe in me and so many people who are just so sure that so much is to come out of the future. But I felt like I had no idea as to how all of that was going to come to be. See, what you may know about me is that I currently have the opportunity to work for Disney. But what you may not know is that before that happened, there was a year and a half of failed attempts at anything that could hopefully show forth as proof of the potential that people saw in me post-graduation. What you may know about me is that I get the chance to inspire people who are younger than me. I get the chance to inspire people who are older than me. I get the chance to inspire people who are my age. But what you may not know about me is that I used to watch those people who I graduated with. Inspired, concerned, sometimes downright envious that they had somehow seemed to get it. Many of them moved on to jobs right after graduation. Many of them seemed like they were so locked into their potential. And, and here I was just trying to make it. it. It was sort of like building without a blueprint. This whole sense of adulting, there is no template or blueprint for it. You have this idea, right? You know the what. Get a good job. If you're in a relationship, start a family. Uh, get your, your best life, right? Uh, make some good money. Hopefully start a cause, impact some people. Really make it big. Blow up, right? Start to move out on your own. Start to take care of some of your own responsibilities. But I realize that this adulting thing has no blueprint for it. And it feels like, first of all, confusion. Like, what do I do next? I'm oversensitized and overexposed to the what I'm trying to achieve. But there is no immediate reference as to how. So the first thing you feel is confused. The other thing I remember feeling was, quite frankly, alone. 
how was everybody else getting it and I and I wasn't? How was everybody else moving forward to it? And it seemed like my journey was taking a little bit longer than I had anticipated or a little bit longer than people told me it would based upon my potential, right? It felt confusing. It felt lonely. But building without a blueprint in terms of becoming an adult also felt sort of disorienting. Like, when, when does it start to happen? When does it start to come together? How do you know that it comes together? So the thoughts of this podcast came because I began to sit to myself and think, maybe I'm not the only one that has ever felt that way. Maybe I'm not the only one who has ever been frustrated by the idea that what was manifesting in your life looked nothing like the potential that people told you they saw in you. Maybe I wasn't alone. Maybe I wasn't the only person who has ever struggled with knowing what you wanted to do, but having no idea of how to do it. Maybe I wasn't the, the only person who had grown up and had dreams, but no immediate representation of someone who looked like you going through what you're going through, building what you're trying to build. I thought maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I'm not the only person who has ever looked in the mirror and didn't see in yourself what other people were so sure they saw in you. It's building without a blueprint. Building without a blueprint is having sheets of paper that you've written on with your dreams that you haven't started on because you don't know what step one is. Building without a blueprint is feeling like there's no support group for the particular thing that you're dealing with. Building without a blueprint is the process of trying and having no idea how what you're doing right now fits in with the overall scheme of what's being built. Building without a blueprint is feeling like you have the what, but no how. I really decided to move forward with this because even though adulting post-graduation and right, everybody's felt this way, right? Oh, adulting my life. What am I doing? I oh, mean, God, like, yes, we've all been there. It was just immediate for me. And it hit me in a very personal way because it was the first time I had to grapple with a down season because for my entire life, I'd been used to some sort of achievement or some sort of visual symbol that would confirm what people believed in me. But even though it was adulting that brought those feelings to the forefront, even though it was adulting that helped me frame this feeling in the words building without a blueprint, I realized that that's been kind of like my whole life. Adulting is the first time I've really, quote unquote, wrestled with it, but uh, it's been my entire life. There's never been any blueprint for anything God has called me to do. There's never been a blueprint for being a kid preacher. I'm sorry. There was no kid preacher support group when I was growing up. I didn't know any other kid preachers who started preaching as young as I did. And, and my whole life has kind of looked like that. Post-college was the first time I really wrestled with it. Right. But I looked back at my whole life and said, you know what? I've never really had a blueprint for anything that God has called me to do. And I've spent my entire life building, walking by faith. I was two years old with a brush to my mouth like a microphone and a Disney video cover that I had taken the VHS out of, opened it. I kept pulling it back so that hopefully it would stay open because that was my Bible. There was an oval shaped glass table that sat in the middle of our den. The big screen TV that we had was perched on a step that sat a little bit higher than the coffee table. My Disney video cover sat on that glass with the brush to my mouth and a t-shirt in my hand like a towel, I made circles around that coffee table preaching. No one knew why or where that had come from. 
my mother suspected that it was just because I saw my founding pastor, Elder James Starr Jr., and that maybe I was just a church kid whose playtime had been infused with what I had seen. Little did anybody know it was that playtime that was actually infused with purpose. I would make circles around that coffee table, yelling and screaming, preaching uh, from the bottom of my heart at the top of my lungs, and it sounded a little bit like this. My mother would videotape it. She thought it was funny. She thought nobody's going to believe this boy. Bless his heart. She would sit on the phone with Auntie Sharon and tell her, hey, church is in session. Because this was something I would do routinely. Fast forward. She put me in preschool. Because surely a kid as disillusioned as this, to be preaching in his playtime needs to be socialized around other children so that he could be brought back to normal. Well, so much for socialization. The report would come back from my preschool teacher that at recess I would organize the kids in a circle around me and preach to them. Now, why my friends in preschool allowed me to punish them in this way, I'll never know. Another report came from that same preschool teacher. She said that there was a speech that was being taught to us and that the parents were supposed to help finish the rest of the teaching of that speech when the kids got home. When I got home, I had already memorized the speech. Commit to I can. I can, I will, has the power of 10. I can't, has the overwhelming strength of none. Doing your best is a lawful measurement of success. Not trying at all could it be measured on any scale. Hope is the tool for a dreamer. Faith empowers the mind and heart. Can you see beyond the starting point of any goals or tasks? Or are you easily blinded by the simplicity of not trying at all? It's time to keep your eyes on the prize. Fight to make your dreams tomorrow a reality. My mother realized through that experience that I had a knack for memorizing speeches, and so she began to teach me more. Speeches like James Weldon Johnson's The Creation, which was a poem. Speeches like Heaven's Grocery Store. Speeches like God is Awesome. And and I just began saying those speeches at different church programs, community events, because my mother worked in politics at the time. And finally, there was this one night where I was supposed to say this speech at a church called Crusaders Temple Church of God in Christ, not far from the house. This, I remember, almost like it was yesterday, we got out of the car We were parked on the west side of the street, and there's a mural there. I got out of the car, and my mother held my hand as we were in the street, going to cross to the east side of the street where the church was. And I remember, said to my mother, do I have to say what you told me to say, or can I say what God told me to say? Now, like any parent in their right mind, my sainted mother looked at me with a look like, bro, you're four. What is God telling you to say? She said to Her godmother, who was the planner of that program, she said, listen, I don't know what he's going to do. He said something about you wants to say what God told him to say. Now, listen, uh, I have no idea what that is. So if you don't want to be on the program, that's fine. I, I, I get it. She let me be on the program anyway. And that night I preached my first sermon 
on David and Goliath. I went through the whole story about the meaning of David and Goliath and what he had done. And even at the end, um, I had the church imagining that they were David cutting the metaphorical head off of their giant. And so it began. My mother thought, okay, one time uh, this might just be that playtime thing again. And it was my home church that said, okay, well, you know, if he did it at another church, let him do it at home. My mother was going out of town. So she said, why not? I, I guess if he does anything crazy, they know how to sit him down and shut him up. My second sermon was not a runaway from the first. And in fact, I was told lasted about 30 minutes. I'm told by people who were there that night that I took a whole three points and a close. And so it continued. I began preaching. What I had done in playtime now began to resurface its purpose. My parents thought, surely this is a, a one-time thing. Until they began to see it in every facet of my life. Not only was I preaching at school, not only was I preaching in church, but more playtime things. I would be in the bathtub. And I remember specifically that one of my favorite things to do when I was six and seven and eight taking baths um, is that I would be taking a bath. And when they would leave me alone, my favorite thing to do was I would take the washcloth that was being used to wash me. I would wring it out and then I would hang it over the edge of the bathtub. I would then take the little tiny bucket that was used to rinse my hair when my parents would wash my hair. And I would fill that with the bath water and I would sit it on top of the washcloth on the end of the bathtub. I would take the big bar of soap and I would sit it next to the bucket that was on top of the washcloth. And I would turn to that side of the bathtub overlooking the edge and I would administer communion. It was my favorite part of every bath. It was the time where I got to hold up the bucket as though I was holding up uh, the juice of communion. Y'all don't judge me. I could see it in your eyes right now. <laughs> this was my fun. I would hold up the bar of soap like it was the bread. I would pray over it and I would say this do as off as ye do it in remembrance of me. And then I put it all back. So by the time my mom or dad came back, it was just like bath time as usual. And so it continued. My parents thought for sure this is something that is just a fly by night. Bless his precious heart. He's a kid. He has no idea what preaching is. He has no idea what really is behind all this stuff. He's probably doing it because he's seen a lot of it. That's typical for kids, right? Neither one of them was super eager to go down the road of ministry. See, my father was a devout Christian, but somebody who didn't believe in a whole lot of religion. Father loved God, was a student of the word, but had come from a church tradition where you weren't in church a whole lot. Hour and a half service on Sunday, one hour long Bible study through the week. That was him. My mother, on the other hand, grew up real deep Pentecostal heritage in the Church of God in Christ. Member of the Olive Grove Church of God in Christ, founded by my founder, Elder James Starr Jr., who was the brother of my grandfather. Fantastic and amazing Pentecostal roots, the kind of Pentecostal roots that were in church every single day of the week. My mom tells a story how every day and every night there was something going on at the church. Oh, you mean to tell me you want to go to your high school football game? Oh, no, there's something going on at church. <laughs> my mom was involved in every auxiliary. So by the time she reached college, she'd had an experience with God that had helped her understand that God was birthed in her through church, but God was not limited to church, that there was, there was more in the experience. So by that time, my mother was quite excited, I think, uh, to marry a man who was not that deep into church all the time. I would guess if you would talk to anybody who grew up in that same vein in any sort of denomination that was in church all the time, they might tell you that when they reached adulthood, they were just like, look, we love Jesus, but don't need all the church. <laughs> 
So between the two of them, they weren't necessarily rushing into a reason to be in church more. So they were cautious. They were careful. They stepped lightly. One, because they knew how serious it was. Two, because they weren't rushing to be in more church. And three, because they understood that, look, this dude's a kid. When people hear about me in the ministry, their first thought is that his parents must have pimped him. Their first thought is that these people must have not had lives. So the best thing that they could do was to make this kid do what they wanted him to do. It wasn't really that at all. It was my persistence in this idea that this is me. This is what I feel called to do. It was finally my pastor, Elder Starr, who put my mom aside and said in so many words, listen, this is real. This is what he's going to do. Elder Starr believed in me. He saw in me that this was more than playtime. He saw in me that this was more than me enacting what I had seen. He saw in me that this was more than something that I was dreaming up in my imagination. If he could see heaven, I believe that he saw the imprint of God's hand on my life in a stronger way than I would ever understand, in a stronger way than my parents could denote at the time, and in a stronger way than anybody else was willing to acknowledge. In this kid, he saw that there was a gift and an anointing and a purpose And he said to my parents that this is what he's going to do. So he stood by, never pushing, but always helping. I remember he was larger than life to me. My very first preacher role model. I loved the way he would stand on his tippy toes when he preached. I loved it because he was short, but you never could tell it by the way that he preached. I loved it because he was humble. He was funny, very calm demeanor. I loved him because he was larger than life, but still made himself small for me. Remember, there was this one time he let me finish his orange juice. That meant the world to me because after he preached, he either had one of two things. It was either water or orange juice. And I'll never forget that Sunday I stood just admiring who he was. He tilted his glass toward me, motioning if I wanted some. And I don't know whether I wanted the last little bit of orange juice or whether I wanted to share a glass of my hero. Either way, it was a moment I'll never forget. He was larger than life to me, which is why it was such a big deal that I learned after he passed that one of the last things he did before he transitioned on to glory was he wrote a letter of recommendation to the Church of God in Christ Incorporated for me to receive my license as a minister at seven years old. He knew that he wouldn't live to see it, but he could sow a seed into it. He was larger than life to me. There at seven years old, I went to go run my first revival. It was at a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, with a pastor named Dr. Reginald Kamara, the first pastor to ever turn over his pulpit for three nights. Three nights. That set it in motion that I was in full swing of pursuing my gift of preaching. Preaching was my heart. It was everything I wanted to do all the time. And I was a young man preaching in pulpits in all different denominations. I remember the first Methodist church I preached at. I remember the first Catholic church I preached at. I remember being a kid traveling to different cities. I remember the first time I traveled to preach at a church in Tampa, Florida. Minister Ricky Wade there was so kind as to have police escorts who escorted the car that it brought me in as a welcome. The church there in Tampa for nearly eight years had the same Sunday in March every year that they had officially declared Princeton Parker Sunday for me to come out and preach. 
I remember laying hands on people and watching them give testimonies of being healed. I remember I was 13 when I first found my own style. It was the first time I remember really sitting with the message process from beginning to end. I mean, really sitting with it in terms of figuring out what do I want to say? Not just what do I want to say, but how do I want to say it? I preach this message called Becoming a Spiritual Power Ranger. <laughs> it was inspired by the fact that my brother Preston had been watching Power Rangers. And I said, well, there's a message in that somehow. There's no blueprint for being a kid doing the job of what the average person is 50 doing. There's no blueprint for when you are trying to grow through adolescence and puberty and then your teenage years and then college and then into early adulthood and still doing that and ministry. There's no blueprint for when you are becoming an icon to some people before you've even fully learned who you are yet. There's no blueprint for being a kid preacher. My journey continued when I entered middle school. And I also realized that coupled with my love for preaching was a love for music. Music was always in our household. It was at the church. It was in our family. We would sing in our spare time. Music was something that was consistently around me. I remember the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to learn how to play drums because drums fascinated me. I was fascinated by my cousin Brent, who was a drummer. He was my inspiration. He was the one who would let me sit and watch him or sit on his lap, who gave me my first pair of sticks. And it was the Olive Grove Church of God in Christ that would let me test out on them as I was playing drums. Even before that, when I was in my early days of playtime, it was my godparents who bought me a drum set because they heard I was interested. And boy, I would bang the mess out of those things. Then I began playing in church. Loved gospel music. It was my primary motivation for wanting to play. I loved gospel music. And I'm talking about all gospel music, right? On some days I can vibe with Kurt Franklin. On other days I need some, some James Cleveland, some Thomas Whitfield, some Vanessa Bell Armstrong. Some days I need some Ty Tribbett, some Israel Holton, some Casey J. Other days I need to reach back and go get some Milton Brunson. I need to get some Judy McAllister. I need some Kiara Sheard. I need the Clark sisters. I need John P. Key. I love me some gospel music. But the other thing there was no blueprint for was how to become somebody who was cultured, who understood how to occupy space in the world by understanding more things than my first immediate experience, how to expand my knowledge of who I was. Right. And part of that expansion came when I was in middle school. I will never forget it. I was in the sixth grade with a man by the name of Donnie Williams. Donnie Williams was my sixth grade music teacher, and he taught a class called World of Music at 32nd Street Performing Arts. Every day we would come into that class and he would teach us about an aspect of world music, understanding all the different phases of music. And I remember the whole class had been good, but there was something about that second semester when we went in and started learning about American music. It started with unpacking slavery, studying the hymns and the spiritual songs and the slave songs that were birthed out of slavery how that transcended into songs of gospel, into songs of blues, and how those things developed into the American art form that we would call jazz. And that was so fascinating to me. First of all, the idea that I was unpacking in the sixth grade what slavery meant and its implications and some of the things that occurred, but also that there was something produced out of that, something sonic that you could feel 
that meant a lot to me. I remember the first time I heard Ella Fitzgerald. That moved me. It absolutely shook me to my core that there was this art form that was completely improvisational, that took syllables and arranged it together and expressed how you felt on the inside. There was a personal point of connection for me that made me fall in love with the music of jazz. I began to learn how to play and study and studied all throughout middle school. It was that same teacher, Mr. Don Williams, who after teaching us that world of music class, he realized my heart for music first founded in gospel music and in what I had been raised in, in the church tradition, but also in all these new things that I was being exposed to and learning. And he realized that I wanted to play piano. So once or twice a week, every week in my eighth grade year, he would sit down with me for an hour after school and for free, show me my first chords on piano. Never forget him for it. I continued taking piano lessons and then uh, my heart began to be enlarged because of course, what do I want to do? I, I want to play gospel music most of all. I love jazz and I love what I'm learning about it, but gospel is my heart, right? So um, I began to turn my sights to the organ. The organ was the crux of the church. As a matter of fact, if all you have is an organ and a drum set, you got all you need to have some good, downright, stanky, knockout, drag out church. Ooh if you got an organ, you all right. And I wanted to play because my love for music, remember, had been birthed out of going to convocations at West Angeles Church of God in Christ. It had been birthed out of watching videos and listening to Yolanda Adams sing Open My Heart, right? It, it had been birthed out of this, this church experience, which was curated by the organ. So I've been playing drums this time. Mr. Williams, he got me started playing keys, but I felt like life wasn't complete until I learned how to play the organ. My godparents again, same godparents who were kind enough to buy me that drum set and eventually my first keyboard bought me my first organ lessons. I remember I would sit on Monday nights in an empty Olive Grove church and just kind of figure out my way around the organ with a teacher who was helping me. I remember the first time my mother came in to observe me playing the organ and she said, mm, sound like mortuary music in here. Yeah, that was mom. Always telling the truth, right? I continued through high school, high school where I began to find my love of music played a role in connecting me to people who were different from me. At Hamilton High School, it was the space where um, I really began to, through music, connect with people who would show me how to develop myself and my understanding of the world. Hamilton was the place that gave me the gift of relationship with people who would challenge what I thought, who would open my mind, who would show me different ways of looking at the world. It was at Hamilton that I met my first atheist friend. It was at Hamilton that uh, I met my first friend who we had amazing conversations because she didn't believe in love. She believed that love was a construct. She didn't believe that love was real. And I remember us going back and forth and I would even ask her questions about it because I was so intrigued by the conversation. Not all the time did I even know what I believed about love or why I believed in it besides the fact that I did. I'll never forget the first time that in Hamilton, it was a space where I got to meet some of my first Muslim brothers and sisters. Hamilton was the place that gave me the gift of Mr. Jim Fosha, one of the most influential educators in my life. He was my music teacher spent the greater majority of four years. He had a huge concern for helping people. He had a huge concern for uplift and a huge concern for social justice in a way. 
but he also was not someone who was moved at all by faith. I remember it was Mr. Fosher who said to me one time, he said something I'll never forget. He said, I'm an evangelical atheist, which in other words, he says that if evangelicals feel called to spread their faith, then I feel called to spread my lack of faith. And that was powerful because through that, he was engaging me in trying to begin the process of understanding at this point in high school, not just what do I believe, but why do I believe what I believe? I'll never forget. It was in a group discussion about politics and religion um, that he posed the question to the group where I was about why um, I would believe in religion, considering that Christianity had been used to oppress those who looked like me for so long. It was one of the first times I had the opportunity to grapple with this idea of what I believed and what I felt like it could do, while all the while having to accept the reality of what it had been used to do in terms of oppressing the lives and bodies of those who are my ancestors in this country. Hamilton gave me the gift of many people who were different than I was. My phenomenal choir teacher, John Hamilton, who pushed me vocally, who pushed conversation about what we knew about the world and about life. Hamilton was a place where I met all these people who were so fundamentally different, but what we had the opportunity to do was be united around art. So high school was phenomenal. Played in several bands, got the opportunity to travel, served on a leadership committee. But it was also a challenge because high school was the time where I began to wrestle with this idea that I didn't fully know who Princeton was. Now, high school is the time where most everybody goes through that, right? There's so many changes going on. There's puberty and there's hormones and you're understanding your yourself. You're understanding your sexual self. There are all these emotions. There are all these things going on. And that's typical for high school. But there's no blueprint for how you do that. And I'm still preaching three weekends out of every month, still serving as the church organist, still traveling and speaking at youth conferences and going to help people understand who they are and get healed and freed. But I didn't know. High school was also the time where I wrestled with this idea that I didn't find myself attractive. I felt like I was smart, maybe a little bit popular, but I felt kind of on the outside because I wasn't cool by the high school definition standards of cool, right? I felt like I wasn't cute. Talking about a guy who's like 5'2". And at my max in high school, I was about 210 pounds. One of the first girls that I was interested in out of middle school coming into high school, we had kind of made this commitment to one another that we would wait because there was no, there was a rule in my house that there was no dating until the age of 16. So I had this idea that we would wait for one another and there was this commitment. And lo and behold, after summer, within the first three months of high school, I would find her making out with this football player right outside of our sixth period class. That shattered me, and I only bring it up because it reinforced this idea in me that I wasn't attractive, that I was cool, but only because I did the whole preaching thing. And even that made some people feel like, hey, I don't really know how to approach him. So sometimes it wasn't that I wasn't liked or anything like that. It was this idea that, hey, he's a little different. I just don't know how to approach him. But in that season of my life, I didn't know how not to read that as I'm not cool or I'm on the outside, or whatever that might mean. The next pivotal moment in my life would come when I was a senior in high school. My mom used to listen to the Steve Harvey Morning Show, and on it, they advertised this program called Disney Dreamers Academy. Now, you got to understand, senior year, I was doing some of everything. I was in the top jazz band, the top vocal jazz choir, doing the jazz combo. We had a leadership committee going on. I was in my first musical ever called Into the Woods. Shout out to the whole Into the Woods cast. If you're listening, I love you. I miss you. I was doing some of everything. 
And my mom said, hey, there's this program you should apply for. I was so involved in all the things that I was about to do and getting ready to do. I was like, ah, figure it out later. And there was applying to college and all that. She said, you need to apply for this program. So finally, in true black mom fashion, she said, boy, you ain't getting up from this table until you fill out this application. See, my mom, since I was very young, had always taught me these five words to live by. She said, take advantage of every opportunity. Take advantage of every opportunity. Dreamers Academy was the biggest opportunity that I would ever take advantage of. I applied and out of 5,000 applicants, I was selected one of 100 to be able to receive a four day all expense paid trip to Walt Disney World where 100 high school students were brought together on the property to solely be motivated, inspired, educated, and empowered to pursue their wildest dreams. Second weekend of March, I was in Walt Disney World sitting in what's called the World Show Place. Sitting at a table with a plate of breakfast, there was a blueberry muffin on the plate, some eggs and some fruit. It was the Friday morning, the welcome ceremony that Thursday night had already taken place the night before. And I sat there that Friday morning, right? waiting for the first speaker. I was facing the stage. He entered from the back of the house. Slender, well-dressed, bald-head man who started from the back. He said, clap your hands, everybody. Everybody clap your hands, right? And he's hyping us all up. And I'm like, all right, uh, okay, all right, all right, uh okay, all right. And this man jumps on the stage and he starts to do his speech, right? And he's like, say this after me. If it is going to be, if it is going to be, it is up to me. It is up to me. And he's going in, right? And he starts to do his motivational talk for an hour. And I was watching him and I was enthralled because as he kept talking, I kept saying to myself, this dude is preaching. I remember taking some notes and I'd listen again and I would take some notes and I would listen again and his cadence and the thrust behind his words and the depth of the breaths that he took and how he landed and how he quoted scripture, but he quoted them as quotes so that people wouldn't really know. I was moved and I said, do you, do you, I kept looking around like, does anybody else get this? This man is preaching, but there was no organ, no choir. In fact, it was the Mickey Mouse logo behind him. And that moment changed my life forever because just like elder james star this man was larger than life to me in a different way though i had seen myself in elder james star and i saw a different piece of myself in this man jonathan sprinkles this idea that maybe everything that i had done had a space in different parts of the world other than what i had seen you see if you had asked 12 year old princeton parker what he wanted to be he would have said I want to be the presiding bishop of the churches of God in Christ. Well, fast forward, it's not really my dream now. I saw in Jonathan Sprinkles that maybe there was more than the four walls of the church where my gift could be used. Seeing Jonathan in that space really caused me to reflect. And it changed, or not so much changed, but enhanced what I thought was possible for the future. Being at Dreamers Academy enhanced what I thought was possible for the future. It made me understand that, yes, the church was the foundation. And yes, there was a consistent pastoral calling on my life. But maybe there was also more that I was supposed to do. Maybe there were other ways that my gifts could impact the world and serve people more than what I had realized. 
So I left Dreamers Academy and uh, went on to write for the Huffington Post. I was able to um, study abroad. I started my journey at USC and really continued to find my voice and, and my space and how I could contribute to the world. And I owe that to the exposure and the experience that was given to me at Dreamers Academy. That experience has come full circle in that in 2011, it was my application sitting on the table to be reviewed. And now I get to sit at that table alongside the same people who impacted me, alongside Jonathan, alongside Steve Harvey, alongside so many people who are geniuses in their field who have lived lives of service next to Yolanda Adams, right? The same person whose cassette I used to listen to, remember when I was listening to Open My Heart in the midst of it all, being able to sit next to these people and glean from them and be able to be in my right now, but sit next to my future and get inspiration for how you built this thing with no blueprint. I left Dreamers Academy and I started college at USC. And my experience at USC was so interesting in three ways. The first way was through community. In all of my life, one of the biggest struggles that I've had was that I felt so different, right? And I always knew what it was to be popular, but I never knew what it was to have a community. Like, this is my squad. This is the area of people who I feel like I can be all aspects of myself and be able to relate to people, have them relate to me and have that freedom to be every aspect of who I was, or at least felt like I was at that time, I was able to make it because of the gospel choir. So I remember the first time I heard that there was one, I was like, they got a gospel choir at USC. What they know about gospel? They don't know nothing. Cause you know, by this time, like I'm playing piano and, and organ for my church. Like it's been a few years and whatever, whatever. So I was like, what they know about a little gospel over here at SC? What they know about it? And so I went to their concert before I started in the spring. And I was like, oh my God, they know a little something over here about it. And I was like, and they're so cool. And then I was like, and they're nice to me. Um, so that was my community. Loved every second of being with um, the USC Saved by Grace Gospel Choir. SBG in the house. That was like our call. Anyway, guys like uh, Marcus Pettit, Marcus Paul, my brother. Early on, people like uh, Micaiah Green, Elizabeth Alabale, Emmanuel Powell, Najee Ritter, Serena Powery. Now I'm calling out people and I'm about to, man, I'm about to miss so many folks. I shouldn't have even started calling names. But so many people who helped me get grounded. But what was important was not only did I have friends like from a faith community perspective, but SC was impactful because I had moments of enlightenment where I was really challenged about what I knew about racism and systemic oppression. And I was socialized into wokeness <laughs> because I was around people who were so well-read, who were so well-versed in the experience and the history of oppression in this country and the ways in which that still manifests today in our media and the way that we speak and our policy and our approach towards races, towards equality and equal opportunity, the ways in which that oppression affects not just race, but gender. And I was one of those people who knew about racism and like spoke about it, but didn't understand systematic oppression. I think it's two different things. I think you can know that racism is a thing, but until you understand systematic oppression and the ways in which, because it's a system it continues and it could be traced and found in a number of different things, not just things like use of the N-word or slavery. When you understand that it's a system, then you don't just stop when slavery is abolished. You don't just stop at a black president. But I wasn't there when I started in college, but I was around people who were. 
And by listening to their conversations, I remember being challenged on certain views that I had. And then I remember just being silent and allowing myself to just listen to people who are so much further along. That is where I really, 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 really started to learn and unpack. And and I don't say I'm woke. Like, that's not something I claim to be. Because you have to ask, like, what the definition of wokeness is and by what standards and by whose standards. Because sometimes our wokeness is shaped by the thing that affects us the most, not liberty in general. And so I don't claim to be woke, but I will say that that is when I became conscious. And I owe that to my community and to some classes that I took. And so I think early on it was about I'm going to be a pastor and I'm going to preach. Dreamers Academy was about figuring out all the other ways that I could parlay my gift. But college was about me realizing the true purpose for that gift. It was like, no, you're not just going to preach. Your preaching is for a purpose. Like there is a cause that your voice is devoted to. Right. It's not just about you using words, but you have to know who you are called to and what you're called to do and what purpose you serve. And that's what USC did for me. Did some other things. Directed the gospel choir eventually. Went on to continue to do music, graduated, met this wonderful, intelligent, gorgeous sister at USC named Corinne. I was at a black student assembly meeting and uh, looked across the room. And there was this girl. And I often say that she smiled and like time stopped. It's like, I don't know what was making her smile in that moment, but I want to be the reason for that smile every moment hereafter. Got the chance to meet her. Her name is Corinne. She was incredibly intelligent, wildly different from me in personalities and views. And we were able to grow from one another and build a friendship. I was able to share my entire story, not just the part that's on stage. But I remember having a conversation saying, hey, I want you to know Princeton A to Z. Not just the Princeton that's on stage, not just Preacher Princeton, not just the Princeton, the performer. Like, I, I want you to know me. So that you have the opportunity to vibe with whether or not that's something that you want because I value you too much to waste your time. We began dating that December 2014. Then I realized <laughs> that there is no blueprint for dating. There's no blueprint for dating into marriage, right? There's no blueprint for how do you do the healthy work of continuing to build yourselves as individuals like apart from one another and still dedicate time and energy and focus to building whatever it is that you're building in the relationship together. And there certainly, y'all, wasn't no blueprint for dating and being in ministry. With eyes on you and expectations and, and this idea of what things are supposed to be, there was no blueprint for me for that. And that's something I'm still walking through in terms of what does that look like? I know a lot of people who've been married for a very, very long time, but how they got there, there seems to be no blueprint for it. And I come from people who've been married a long time. My parents have been married 25 years. My grandparents just celebrated 61. Like, how crazy is that? 61 years of marriage. And I ask them all the time, like, yo, like, I see y'all together, but how? How does this work? How do you build it? So there's no blueprint for that. Now we've come full circle to the end of college and my own personal adulting struggle and trying to figure out how do I make sense of all this? How do I make sense of trying to achieve and trying to fight for change and trying to serve God and trying to build all these different things. And had you talked to me even two years ago, my philosophy would have been that you do something like this, like this podcast, 
when your building is done and it's beautiful and fancy and people admire it and they're like, oh my goodness, that is the best building I have ever seen. I am so inspired by the complete perfection of your building, sir. Please tell me how you did it. And then here I would come in and say, you know, first of all, all praise be to God. <laughs> you know how people how people get real spiritual, like when you're like after you just gassed them up, like, oh my goodness, first of all, you know, bless up. You know what I'm saying? Blessed, hashtag blessed, you know. I thought that that was what inspiration and leadership meant, right? I thought that true leadership meant I become perfect and then I inspire you by how perfect I am. But I remember reading this quote that says that you don't inspire people by being perfect. You inspire people by how you deal with your imperfections. So I finally sat in my consideration of doing this podcast and I was honestly frustrated, right? Thinking, how am I in any place to lead this podcast when I still have questions? How do I continue preaching when I quite honestly still have doubts? How do I continue to be open with people when I'm not married? I haven't gotten through all these places. Like I haven't gotten my full, complete independence as an adult. Like I'm not making all this money. So how can I? And it was as if it came back to me that I had to reconcile that the best place to inspire people was from the standpoint of building alongside them. Here I am with the understanding that the biggest thing I needed help with was the blueprint for how to love Princeton despite his imperfections, with his imperfections, because of his imperfections. And that was the hardest part. How do I love Princeton if I'm not preaching, if I'm not achieving, if it, if it doesn't look perfect, if I'm not meeting everyone else's expectations, does Princeton still love Princeton? And part of the way that you know that you've grappled with that place is when you're able to love on people and inspire people when you don't have it all together. The ability for me to sit with myself, first of all, without any of those things and be like, you know what? I love Princeton. God loves Princeton. But to also then be able to say, hey, from that place, I will share with you. Here's my story. Here's my testimony. And here is what I'm doing to figure it out. Because I believe that it is important to work on a building. But it's equally, if not more important, to make sure that you, the person, doesn't get lost in the building. So here we are. Here's the journey. Let's get started. This is what it's about, right? It's about the do it and see what happens, because I believe that through these conversations and through these moments, I believe you'll be helped by this idea that, number one, you're not alone. And number two, there are people out here who can provide tools to build. Now, all of us are building something different. All of it looks differently because of our context, because of what we've experienced up until this moment and because of who we feel called to help. But I want you to know that, first of all, you're not alone. And second of all, there are tools to build. So here we go. Building without a blueprint. Welcome to the journey. I pray that you will be inspired, educated, empowered, at some points challenged. But most of all, I pray that you will be able to feel strengthened so that you can stand in full love of God, full love of yourself, and last but not least, in full preparation to be able to give what you need to give to whatever it is you're trying to build. It's going to look three different ways, y'all. Sometimes it's going to be just me behind the mic sharing from my heart, because again, talking is like my thing. <laughs> the other thing is sometimes I'm going to share sermons. So one of the coolest things that I've realized is that there's so much content that I've had that I've shared with people um, that we just haven't released. And so this is going to be the platform to kind of do that. But the part that I'm most excited about is the opportunity to sit down and have conversations with people who I feel like are experts 
people who I feel like have been building, have been grinding and know what it's like to build something without a blueprint. And my question to them is going to be, what are you building and how did you do it? And hopefully through those conversations, you'll be able to get some tips and what I like to call tools for your building. Fam, that's it. Welcome to the journey. Thank you for listening to this first episode. I hope you'll continue to go on this journey with me.